Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning, one minute past nine. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. You may be listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. There's a lot of that happening today. My name's Prom Burton. And I'm Fum. Hi, everyone. How are you, Fum? Yeah, good, good. Better than the weather outside. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Winter. Yes. <laughs> Just when we thought we had a um, little, little catapult back into summer. Yeah. Uh-uh-uh. Nope. Back to winter. Don't get your hopes up. Yep. <laughs> hey, thank you, Tim, very much for wonderful vital bits. Thank you, Andrew, for soulful bits. And, um, yeah, six hours of Tim Thor Power this weekend. You can catch him next Saturday at 6 a.m. Uh, we have a interesting show. Uh, yeah, interesting show. I mean, we always do. We like, we like to, <laughs> we like to think say. we do. <laughs> As opposed to all the other ones. Yeah, we, we hope to make it interesting yeah, for you, no. everyone. Yeah, we, we have this funny thing on Radio Marinara where, it, you know, most often not by design, we end up having themes for our programs. They just sort of, you know, evolve that way. And that certainly happened today. So Rex Hunter is going to be joining us shortly in studio. Um, Rex is our in-house maritime archaeologist, and he's going to be bringing some exciting news about the discovery of the Tommy Dodd in Port Phillip Bay. And I Googled Tommy Dodd. There's actually several Tommy Dodds. Oh, really? One of them is the wreck. <laughs> I think there's an engineer. <laughs> there's some sports sports hero in the US. There's, there's a few Tommy Dodds around, but this one is uh, about um, a shipwreck. And Rex has been talking about this a little bit on the program over the last uh, last bit of time. So looking forward to talking to Rex about that. We are then going to be speaking with Ben Francischelli. Absolutely. Um, from the lost world of Bayside, everybody's favourite nerdy paleontologist. Um, so stay tuned. He will be on shortly and we will be talking about the ethics of fossil hunting, which is a very interesting thing. So if you picked up the theme, it's all about hunting for things. <laughs> Yes, Hunting and things on things. and things on the bottom of the bay. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. So, yeah, I realised this yesterday. Oh gosh, interesting. And then um, we're going to move away from that. Well, maybe not. I don't actually know what he's going to do. <laughs> actually, I do because I've had a sneak listen. Uh, Jeff Maynard with our Sound Waves um, sequels. S E A quells um sequels so that's his theme for 2021 and this week jeff says we ask the burning question how many sequels does it take to sink a franchise (laughs) well actually there's the theme (laughs) sinking things on the bottom yeah (laughs) Yeah, it has run all the way through so that's our program for today sounds great Let's have a little look at the weather forecast, Fum. Well, I think I already summed it up at the start of the show. Um, The weather for the 11th of April 2021. Melbourne area, we've got a a max of 15 today. Mostly cloudy with a very high chance of showers in the eastern suburbs, grading to a high chance in the west. The chance of a thunderstorm this morning as well in the southeast suburbs. Um, And this also goes for Geelong and the surf coast this morning. And for both of those areas, we also have local hail until the middle of the day. 
Winds Oof. are westerly, 25 to 40 k's an hour, turning southwesterly, 30 to 45 kilometers an hour during the morning. Um, and there is a gale warning as well for the following areas, which is Port Phillip, the West Coast, Central Coast and East Gippsland Coast, and a strong wind warning for Western Port, Gippsland Lakes and Central Gippsland Coast. Monday, 17, Tuesday, a top of 20 and Wednesday, 19. Um, the tides today, well, I don't know if I should actually mention the tides because please do not go out on the bay today. Uh, Port Phillip Head's next low is uh, 11.43 a.m. And um, by proxy, I've got a, a one-sentence dive report via Jackie Younger. Thank you very much, Jackie. And she says, it's crap. Stay home. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jackie. Speediest dive report ever. Yeah. We're going to be catching up with Jackie in a few weeks to talk about um, spider crabs. Indeed. Where are we? April, mid-April. Yeah. The clock's ticking. Yeah, look, uh, there have been some photos already of some spideys aggregating on secret places in the bay. Yeah. I have seen pop up on Facebook, so yeah. And that's an interesting shift, isn't it, from the past where we've celebrated their arrival and said where you can go and look at them and then that's kind of triggered some yeah. stacks on, not of the spider crabs, but um, but harvesting activity. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Interesting shift now. People are yeah. happy to share photos of their arrival but not say where they are. Yeah, so. not the location. So if you want to see them, you just got to get in there. Mm. Yeah, Go out and have a look. I have a um, so Jackie will join us in a couple of weeks. There's a, there's a colouring competition which is underway just to really celebrate the great phenomenon that is the spider crabs, and um, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page now because I'm not sure when it ends. But the the design for people to colour this, have you seen it? It's it so I've cute. seen it. It is the best. It's so <laughs> fun. It's a beautiful um, drawing of the spider crabs with smiling faces under the pier and kids on the pier watching them and the fish that are swimming around them. It's wonderful. So you can encourage your kids to colour it in or you might choose to do that yourself if mm. you want a little bit of, I don't know, something to do. Uh, adult colouring, very <laughs> relaxing. Yeah. Hey, I have an Antarctica report, weather report from um, Cliff Davis, who I've called Triple R's most remote subscriber. And if you're listening to this program and you reckon you're more remote than Antarctica, not in terms of distance, of course, because we know <laughs> we have subscribers york and you know way up in the northern hemisphere but if you're really really remote and you reckon you're more remote than antarctica do you think we can know. get an astronaut from a space <laughs> station <laughs> if we could get that interesting <laughs> that would be more remote oh we could have a space versus no we're not gonna do that <laughs> <laughs> next yeah. next radiothon if you're listening on the international space station april amnesty is a perfect time to subscribe to this wonderful radio station That'll be interesting. We'll see if that comes off. So thanks, Cliff, for sending us our weekly uh, weather report from Antarctica. And he sent a fantastic photo. It looks like the snow has, well, I was going to say sand. Of course, it's always there's always ice and snow down there. But, yeah, it's literally inches thick at his doorstep by the look of it. So we'll post that on our Facebook page. Thank you very much, Cliff. And the uh, the weather forecast, she says, as she gets it up at Casey Station today, our air temperature is minus 10.5 degrees centigrade, wind chill is minus 15.5, humidity 93% and uh, wind at five knots, so still and cold. And the travel conditions, which he always puts up here as well. How are the roads in green, Antarctica? normal. So, <laughs> you know, you can get down there if you have There's no up. traffic. Everyone's still working from home. Yes. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Cliff. Always great to have you with us. Um, 
very quick bit of news and then we're going to listen to some music. Uh, this one has come to us courtesy of Sea to Source. Um, there is a, uh, they have a $5 million grant under the Australian Government's Environment Restoration Fund program. Uh, or that might be advertising it. I'll, I'll read through this properly in a second. But what I wanted to help, we'll bring this bit up to you in a minute. But what I wanted to mention today was that um, today is the National Day of Action. This is a cleanup day, and Conservation Volunteers Australia are hosting 14 C to Source or hashtag C to Source events nationwide calling upon volunteers to help clean up Australia's beaches. Uh, and they say here, and rightly so, in light of Australia's recent volatile, volatile weather and significant rainfall, there's never been a better time to help clean up the coastlines as they have become covered with garbage. So locations across New South Wales, Queensland, Tasmania, Western Australia, South Australia and Victoria, we know we have subscribers in all of those states. Uh, so Sea to Source determined to break their beach cleanup records and add to incredible results they've already achieved. To do this, they need volunteers to register and to take part. Uh, and uh, here's some stats for you. Since September alone, Cedar Source events have successfully managed to remove 1.686 kilos of litter across six states' waterways, uh, remove 45,978 individual items, engaged 934 participants, and held 127 beach cleanup events. So it's great. There's lots of cleanup events happening. We know Tangaro Blue are like world champions oh, at, yes. at the work that they do. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's really great that um, Cedar Source also doing some great stuff too so if you are listening we'll put a link to that on our facebook page as well but if you're listening in melbourne uh, their event today is at 1 p.m it's a beach cleanup at werribee south beach um, all of the other locations i have listed here are in other states so we'll put that up on our facebook page if you want to have a look um, but uh yeah werribee south beach at 1 p.m rug up Take, take take a thermos of soup. Bring a raincoat. <laughs> Bring a raincoat. Yeah. Put on your wellies. Mm-hmm. Get amongst it. Or your it. wetsuit. Might be more, yeah, <laughs> more apt. That's it. All right. It's 9.11. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R, And in just a moment, we'll have Rex Hunter in studio to talk about the Tommy Dodd and other great programs going on uh, through the Maritime Archaeology Association of Victoria Group. Hopefully I got that right. Uh, as I mentioned, April Amnesty Please subscribe if you are an Amnesty subscriber from last year or you haven't subscribed before or if you just want to get into it before our, our traditional Radiothon in August. Rex Hunter. Rex Hunter in the in the flesh. In the flesh, <laughs> in the studio. Great to have you with Complete us. Complete with a wetsuit and flippers. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? Good, good, yeah. Good, yeah, good. Keep myself busy, obviously. Yes. You're here to talk about the Tommy Dodd. Yes, we can actually confirm that that we did find the Tommy Dodd. Um, and the Tommy Dodd is a wreck. And I was saying before you came in, if you Google Tommy Dodd, um, a bunch of things comes up. There's a biography about a Tommy Dodd who lived from uh, 1890 to 1975. He was a stockman and camelier. I gather this is not the Tommy Dodd. <laughs> That was not the Tommy Dodd we were looking for. No. <laughs> uh, and there's also a Tommy Dodd who is a steel pl- uh, lap steel player. So there you go. He's out <laughs> and about everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's an artist called Tommy Dodd as well. But let's let's talk about Tommy Dodd, the vessel. The vessel. The elusive shipwreck. The elusive shipwreck. Well, it was um, all, all this started back at 2009 we started uh, searching for the, the site so um, the vessel was wasn't huge it was like 48 feet by about 13 feet and about five foot five deep I don't know what that is in meters yeah 14 squ- feet what 
um, four meters, roughly, fourteen a bit. Uh, uh, four, four, sorry, four and a bit. Uh wide. Yes. Yeah, yeah, roughly, roughly okay. four. So it's about oh, okay. fourteen point eight meters by about four meters by about one point something or other. Okay. So when they built ships, I'll, I'll digress a little bit here. But built they built ships. They used to build in, in feet and tenths of a foot. So a vessel would be like 48.6 feet, which is six-tenths of a foot. So they did metricize to a point, but yeah. then it doesn't match the modern metric system. So um, the vessel was trading between um, – it was trading off northern Tassie. That was its home port. And it came to Melbourne to collect a load of mining equipment for a mine that was being established in northern, northern Tassie, a uh, gold mine. And all in total – had loaded 35 tonnes of mining equipment on board this little, tiny little vessel, really, because it was only like 14, 14.6 metres long. And it couldn't had a huge flywheel, which was like four, four and a half metres across, and it couldn't fit it into the hold, so it decided to carry it on deck. So it was at Wharfs in Melbourne, and uh, we talked about, about Samuel Plimsel yes. before and the, the load line. Uh, well, there was talk... Talk at the time that this vessel was grossly over overloaded because it was sitting so low in the water, and it was it was very shallow really because it was only like a meter and a bit bit deep. And in eighteen seventy seven, it it took off from Melbourne, hopefully to get across the Bass Strait, and never made it. It got as far as St Leonard's. Um, there was a fisherman on shore called Brown, and he was looking out to the east and saw this vessel turn pull up and just immediately turn. Turn turtle and capsized, and that was the last anybody saw of it. Was it a rogue wave, or did it hit it, a part of reef, or did they? No, it was just a, a cup. I'd say they probably caught, maybe doing a tack or something really oh, like okay. that, and the wind just tipped it over because it was so um, un- unsteady. The centre of gravity, you want the centre of gravity reasonably low when, when you load a vessel, and this is way up high, so you just imagine it just tipped over. Yeah. Just, and that was the end of the show. And then a couple of years later, fishermen were fishing in the area and they kept on hooking up on something so they got the ports and harbours down to have a look and they found the found the wreck so that was purchased by a, a guy called Garnsworthy from Williamstown and um, he said he employed a diver used his own vessel and they recovered all the mining equipment so it was all yeah. still down there all yeah it was all, all still down there so 1879 all the mining equipment was raised and then forgot the vessel was promptly forgotten about after that so was it mostly timber? Yeah, it was timber. It was timber, built of timber, Tassie, Tassie timber. We haven't got any timber samples yet to analyse them, but um, I imagine it's going to be some some types of gum as well. Now, when was this again that the wreck happened? Eighteen seventy seven. Eighteen seventy seven, and it's been down there all that time. Yeah, one hundred and forty something years. So the well, records have indicated that it's there, but you and roughly where it was, but yeah, I'll. I just went through the newspapers looking for um, references and I found a, a reference giving a distance and a bearing from the West Channel pile light. So I used that as the, the basis and then um, started mowing the lawn, bro. <laughs> so we put a photo, I think we put the photo of you mowing the lawn on, <laughs> uh, on our Facebook page, which is really, it's interesting because it's not what I was expecting. I don't know what I was expecting. Uh, not Obviously not literally mowing the lawn, but... Um, but uh, yeah, you're sitting on a boat looking at a laptop, yeah, looking bored, <laughs> as most people do when they mow the lawn. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose when you mow the lawn, um, literally, 
it's an opportunity to kind of zone out a little bit and yeah, yeah, meditate I- and think about all kinds of stuff. But but you can't do that. You got to focus on what's going on on the screen. Well, yeah, you got to got to. Otherwise, you might on. miss something. Well, the, the beauty of our computers, of computers these days, is you can record all your data. So when you get home, it actually gives you a much better opportunity to go through it all. So the primary objective when you go out is just to record the data and don't stop until, until you've done your search grid because we've done it before where we've done a search and we've thought, oh, there's something there, gone over the side, nothing there. So you lost an hour or two diving where you, where you could have been searching. So It's interesting because when you do um, intertidal um, uh, studies and you've got your transects out there and you're mm-hmm. monitoring everything at a you know, certain number of um, centimetres or metres or whatever apart from each other, I, I don't know, maybe things have changed, but certainly when I was doing it, it you didn't have that opportunity to go home and check all of that stuff. You <laughs> had to do it in situ and what you saw was what you recorded and that was it. But it's, yeah. yeah. The beauty oh, it's, the beauty these days is you just record it all onto your SD card or, or whatever and just take it home and just view through it. Take your time to view through it. And then you can adjust the tonings or... Or length, or stretch, or stretch the image, or or do all sorts of things. Do you find when you're doing it, you're basically ground truthing what you've done in the field, or yeah, yeah, you are? Yeah. Do you ever find there's stuff that you've missed? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, interesting. Well, well, yeah, well, I didn't even see the uh, didn't even see the wreck in the data until I got home. Okay, and we got it surprisingly. We were doing the um, the about to start the bo- the last leg of the search, so we went up north and we're doing like roughly five hundred. 500 meter search area and that takes about two and a half three hours and we come down from the north and we're turning turning to head head up head up north again so we come down south and we're at the bottom of the leg and we just got it just within maybe two meters of the bottom of the search grid and i had a look at the data and i missed it by 87.5 meters on the first time i went out in 2009, so we're pretty close. Wow. Yeah. So tell us about your discovery moment this time. When, well, when did you know that you'd found it? Well, I thought we'd found it um, when I looked at the data, but you, 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 I mean, I've been wrong before, and you've gone out and there's just a, a reef or there's a, a scallop dredge or something. So we we went out uh, a second time when we ran a few, few transits, picked it up again, and then... Um, I was able to get a better Latin long this time because um, when you're towing a fish, it's maybe 30 metres behind your boat because of the length of the cable to get it near the bottom. And so I wasn't quite, didn't quite have the quite right lats and longs. And this time we went, went and did a couple more runs and we were able to narrow it down. So I worked out a Latin long and then we came out a third time, put us straight over the top of it, and there it was. So. Mm. But the interesting thing is. This is in the scalloping ground, and about the only good thing Jeff Kennett did was stop scalloping in Port Phillip. <laughs> I don't know if there's any Kennett fans out there. It's probably not. But that was the one good thing he did in, all, in the time he was in. So that stopped a lot of d- damage being done to shipwrecks in the bottom of the bay because there's still scars in the bottom after nearly 30 years. Yeah, interesting because we've, yeah. we've talked obviously a lot about the ecological recovery yeah. after the, the scallop dredging stopped. Yeah. But, yeah, another. Yeah. Well, this proves that shipwrecks can survive scallop dredging because it was in a well-used, crossed um, scallop ground. Mm. And um, it's virtually been levelled off with uh, the level of the seabed because, you know, 40 years of towing 
big scallop dredge, three metre by, you know, two metre scallop dredges, steel dredges around Port Phillip, can do an awful lot of damage. And mm. so you can still see the, uh, in the side scan data, you can still see these dredge marks after oh, nearly 30 years. Wow. So that, it was interesting that it proves that <coughs> shipwrecks, some shipwrecks can survive the damage to, done by scallop dredging and then rehab, habilitate as, as a small artificial reefs out in the middle of nowhere because the rest is just a desert around it. Yeah, yeah. So back to the Tommy Dodd. Yep. Whereabouts is it? Um, and what, I'll what give you, it's a 30, no. <laughs> yeah, roughly. <laughs> it's about two and a half miles straight out from uh, St. Leonard's St. Jetty. St. Leonard's, right, off from the jetty, yep. Yeah. Um, and what would you see if you went down there to look at it? Oh, I just see a bunch of timber and... Um, frames and stuff like that, a little bit of cultural material. And there's actually um, huge, one of the, uh, the archaeologists with us found huge these huge sinkers, lead sinkers. So it proves that it was still being fished over after, you know, probably many, many years after it, uh, it sunk. And this stuff's not worth anything if you're thinking, no. I'll go out there and find my sunken treasure. There's no big treasure no, chests full of It's the archaeological value, value. Yeah. it's the stories, it's the cultural yeah, yeah. importance of finding sites like this within Port Phillip. Well, it's been missing for so long as yeah. well. So what happens now? Are you going out, you were saying um, you haven't got any wood fragments yet. Are you going to go out there and get some? Well, we're planning a project to where, where we're going to do um, a photogrammetry project over where we record the, uh, the site with cameras. And there's some great software out these days where you record a site and then you can actually twist this thing around. And it's so accurate you can get measurements off it. So, yeah, the days of going out with tape measures with, um, you know, t- tape measure and mylar and HB pencils and recording every, all your measurements with, through trilateration, I mean, it still works. But, yeah. But geez, there's some great great software out there that can take, take an awful lot of, <laughs> lot of hours out of the job. And you just it's just brilliant because you said you can get scales, you can record sizes and you can zoom in, you can twist the image around, upside down and everywhere. It's, it's really brilliant these days. Fantastic. Uh, we've got about a minute left. Other Anything else well, on Tommy Dodd or other projects you want to talk about? Uh, well, yeah, well, um, we're actually going to – there's a, a series of programs we're working up to. We're, first, we're going to record the adieu, a, record, a little lime trade we found 2019 off Rye. And that's going to be the first stage of the project. Well, that's going to be photogrammetry. We're running a photogrammetry course over it using that as a model. And then we're going to do the um, Tommy Dodd. And then we're working up to do the City of Lawn system, which is brought in the historic shipwrecks acting Victoria. And that's about 55 metre long vessel right in smacking the little Port Phillip iron sank in 1865 after colliding with the Panola. So, and we're going to record that. With a again photogrammetry, so it's like a three stage because it's still still reasonably new um, concept photogrammetry. Let's talk about that more when you come in next time. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. awesome. No, lots of exciting things happening. Brilliant. Thanks, Rex. No problems, bro. Always a pleasure, and so great to have you in studio again. Yes, it's good, <laughs> it's good to be live. It's, it's a bit easier, isn't it? Triple yeah. <laughs> R is where you are. Time's coming up to nine thirty-six. Farm, over to you.
Ah, oh, this is going to be my favourite segment of the week, I think. <laughs> uh, so with us today is Ben Franciscelli. We all know him as our favourite marine paleontologist here on the show. He's been on <laughs> many times now, uh, but I will still introduce him because he just needs an introduction for the new listeners. So Ben is a vertebrate paleontologist who focuses on the prehistoric coastline of southern Australia. And Ben has led multiple expeditions into the field, discovering evidence of the biggest ever predators, excavating new species of ancient whales, uh, unknown to science so far, and has found fossil evidence of the largest flying bird of all time. Most recently, Ben, ben has been exploring Bayside and has found new exciting fossil evidence from a critical junction of evolutionary time. How does that sound? That's pretty <laughs> Welcome, good Welcome, Ben. Me. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Bron. Fun to be here today. It's exciting. I'm always excited to be here. Yeah, it's always really a pleasure to have you, Ben, because it seems like every time we do a segment with you, we have so many questions. You answer all of them, and then afterwards <laughs> we have a million more questions about fossils. Um, so we're very happy to have you back on the show today, and we are going to have a little dive into um, the ethics of fossil hunting. Um, which is something I've had a million questions about myself because what happens, Ben, when you go out in Bomoras and you go snorkeling and you find a fossil, can you keep it? It is a <laughs> great question and there's a lot of difficult, complicated things that surround it as well. There's no simple answer around anything, unfortunately, which is quite frustrating for you to have to hear farm as well. Um, fundamentally, though, the most one of the, some of the most important discoveries that have come to Museums Victoria and scientific uh, groups in Australia have come from citizen scientists within the last five years. So that resource is particularly important to us. But the occupational health and safety when you are in the field is very important as well. I mean, if you go down to Beaumaris, which is a fossil site that dates back roughly five to six million years, you have to be aware that there are gigantic cliffs just on the side of you. You have to be aware that if you do decide to go snorkeling, there are blue ring octopuses and giant stingrays with, you know, barbs on the ends of the tail that are half a meter in length and let alone anything else that's out there. Jet you make skis, it sound super exciting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It is very exciting. And then we, I won't even get started on the killer sperm whales that we find, even though they've been dead for five million years. <laughs> so the ethics of fossil collection is a really interesting one. First and foremost, you need to figure out whether or not it's public, private, crown land. Now, if it is crown land, you do need to get a permit from DELP in order to excavate anything at all. You cannot just go out there with a hammer and chisel and expect to find anything. But the beautiful thing about Bayside is that this stuff erodes naturally out of the bottom of the sea floor and finds its way onto the surface of the beach. So like you said before, what happens if you find a shark tooth the size of your hands just loose on the beach? It's, it's an intriguing question. So if you think you will never see that tooth ever again, what I would like for you to do is to pick it up, but then contact the authorities, particularly that of Museums Victoria, so that way they know what you found, because what you may have found may be the only piece of evidence of an entire group of animals anywhere on the continent. Mm. And it is really important that we know where it's come from. So take a photo of exactly how you found it and then make sure you send those pictures to Museums Victoria. Um, and the other side of that, though, if you do find something in situ in the ground, do not attempt to dig it up whatsoever. Throughout the surf coast, throughout other areas of Victoria, there's been a lot of people that have been trying to do that themselves with screwdrivers, and they have butchered scientifically important finds in doing so. 
Um, so I would say let the experts do it. Let us come down and we would be the ones to retrieve it. But only if it is of scientific importance. You need to make sure you've got all the documents from DELP and the relevant permits in place if you're going to remove anything at all. And the only real authority that has that power is Museums Victoria. At this yeah, stage. and there is there is an exception, though, isn't there, Ben, when there's uh, Aboriginal artifacts involved? How does that work? Because, um, you know, sometimes that happens as well, where people find artifacts. Um, do you know where they go? I mean, obviously, it's not like, you know, ancient whales and things like that. But um, is there a different uh, structure in place for that? Um, I will admit that I actually don't come into contact with uh, Aboriginal artifacts all that much. I'm not looking through the middens or anything like that. I try to stay away from it as much as possible. Um, but again, what, what would come down to is you need to make sure that you have relevant uh, permits from the authorities to remove anything whatsoever. And you have to do it in the guise of science. You have to do it knowing that what's going to happen is it's going to go into the state repository so that further understanding of these specimens can be undertaken. I guess, Ben, when in doubt, don't touch it. Like, <laughs> pretty much. Those are blurring Dr. Well, Pusses yeah, as well. I know, I, this is the thing. Like, I, I get messages all the time from members of the public, and, and sometimes they can be rather funny. It can just be a stick or something like that. And I really do appreciate it when members of the public send me through pictures of anything because I know that they're really interested in it. But one out of maybe ten you know, that come yeah. through my way will be this ear bone of a completely extinct group of whales we didn't know existed on the continent. And so I go, wow, that's amazing. And understandably, they come in. So just just recently, I'll give you the example, a member of the public found some of the very first evidence of a penguin from the surf coast, the fossil surf coast. It was a tiny little shin bone from a penguin. And um, we didn't know they existed uh, in the Oligocene about 23 million years ago prior until that person had actually found that partial leg bone. So, so it's by actually him picking it up and finding it loose and then contacting the museum and doing the relevant thing, it was really amazing for us. We, it's a total win-win situation for everyone. Yeah, so it's it's like primetime citizen science, really, right? Because you're relying on all of those eyes and, and ears, well, not maybe not ears, but eyes and snorkels <laughs> in many cases to, um, yeah, to scan what's out there. Yeah, and in terms of Bayside, it's definitely snorkels as well. So... Um, look, when I go out in the field, the very first thing in the back of my mind is the occupational health and safety of everyone around me, leading expeditions into the field and doing that kind of stuff. Sometimes I don't even look for the fossils. I'm just looking after the people that are with me because so, so, it can be an intense. Um, and you have to make sure you check the weather every single time. Now, I never want to dissuade people from wanting to go look for fossils, but it is dangerous as well. And I mean, I got started in paleontology as a volunteer, as somebody who was just really interested and wanted to go down into the sites and start looking for fossils myself. But you just have to know what you're doing. Make sure that you've got a buddy system that's there with you. And if something does go wrong, how will you handle that? you know, really think of that occupational health and safety. Yeah, and I, I, I also think, because you, you once told me a story about um, you excavating something from uh, the cliffs in Jan Jack. Like, those cliffs are already exposed um, due to, you know, climate change and, and, and changing coastlines and things like that, which is, you know, bad news, but good for you uh, <laughs> because it exposes <laughs> the fossils. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, chopping, you know, chopping something out of a cliff like that that's already unstable is, is yeah, probably uh, not a great idea if you're not sure what you're doing. 100%. And uh, case in point, we know of a skull that's in the cliff at the moment, uh, not in Janjuk, but along, somewhere along the surf coast. And uh, we won't touch it because we know that if we were to actually try and get it out, we'd probably kill ourselves in doing so because the cliff would collapse on us. And so in that case, we go, it's just not there. 
you know, we know it's of scientific importance and that would be great to get. But by the same token, we're not willing to risk anyone's lives. No fossil is ever worth anyone's life whatsoever. Ben, how did you know the skull was there? Did somebody come across it and do exactly what you've asked them to do? Take a photo, send it in to you, let them let you know or let Museums Victoria know where it is? Yeah, that's that's what exactly what happened. So they took a photo and they said, hey, we've got this weird looking brown smudge coming through the rock itself and i was like oh yeah that's that's bone and you can see the ear bones you can see a bunch of other things you can see the spongy cross section of the of the rostrum and a whole heap of other different anatomical sections that correspond to a whale skull through that cross section so i can hear the exasperation of not being able to access that in your voice (laughs) as you are describing that skull (laughs) little bit of exasperation yeah yeah you you know that um crazy chuckle that uh that character from jurassic park does uh ian malcolm (laughs) when he's on the helicopter and goes (laughs) chaos theory in in a nutshell unfortunately yeah um just while we're talking about photos too you mentioned earlier if people come across something on the beach and you want to you know what you want them to document where they found it um just just i guess a little plea out there to people that um it's probably not going to be very helpful if they take a photo of the object um on the sand with no other context behind it because i've had that happen a few times where people have been beach combing and um, not about fossils but about um things that have washed up and they'd like to know what it is and so they'll take a photo and send it through either to me personally or to our facebook page but without that context of size um, um, you know, if you've got a 20 cent coin in your pocket, put it next to it yeah, so you can get a, a sense of what it looks something. like. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also, 100%. I guess, particularly with fossils, if you're really interested in location, you need to kind of have something that you can um, mark it against to say, okay, well, it's near, you know, if you're using Bo Morris as an example, you take a photo of the object, but with the cliff behind it or with some kind of landmark behind it so you know exactly where it was. That's completely right. So if you ever do find something, if you're roaming the beach at a low tide and you're safe and you're with your buddy and you're thinking of all the occupational health and safety that everyone should be always thinking of, um, take a picture of exactly where you found it on the ground itself. I, I literally live at the site half the time. So, you know, even just a bare patch of rock, I should be able to identify exactly where it is. But the great thing as well is that site has a number of unique structures in the background, particularly that of the cliffs. So if you can take a picture of where you found said specimen, holds a reference point to the specimens itself. Sometimes even just if you have it in your hands and it's not a grainy and blurry photo, I can tell a lot of the size, what it should be like. 20 cent piece, like you suggested before, is really useful as well. So Ben, what happens? Because you're mostly finding things on Crown land, right? So you've got permits and things like that. What happens yep. when you find something on private land? Does it then belong to the landowner or, or how does it work? So if we were to ever go onto private lands, and there are a few quarries around uh, Victoria that are privately owned, as you can imagine, you just need to get access from the quarry owner or anyone who's in charge of said quarry before you can go and access and take anything. And you need to have those discussions prior to anything else happening. So um, I won't I won't disclose the names of any of the quarries or anything like that, but we have an agreement with one quarry in particular where we'll go in, we know that we can keep anything that we find. So we just need to make sure we have those agreements beforehand. How about when it's a gold nugget? Because <laughs> that's usually geology. Oh, gross. Oh, that's disgusting. The bones or bust, honestly. Gold nuggets, not that interesting for me. Yeah, like, okay. Uh, we, well, we know where your priorities lie. That's true, yeah. <laughs> 
um so ben um so what would you what would you um say people do now like because you still want them to send you the photos or just go straight to the museum when somebody finds something that looks like a megalodon tooth or something like that and and yeah it happens more often than you think uh the first point of reference would always be museums victoria go and contact them even if you just contact the social media accounts they'll pass on the photos as well um and the second point of reference if you can't get through to them you can come to me and i (laughs) i can identify pretty much anything from bayside and the and the greatest you know surf coast regions as well so if you if you do want to send anything through to me you can go to my social media accounts i call myself a fool's experiment because I'm a fool and this is my experiment. <laughs> uh, so if you go onto Instagram and you go a underscore fools underscore experiment, you'll see what I mean. I love whales. I don't stop talking about whales half the time. But if you do have any photos of anything that you found, you can send it through. I'll give you a very candid answer about what it is and uh, we'll try and figure it out together what it is that you've picked up from the beach. Wonderful, Ben. Um, as always, that was a real pleasure. Bron, did you have another question? I was just going to say, Ben, um, we'd love to get you back on in a, in a, you know, in a few weeks' time. Anything um, you want to plug coming up in the next few weeks? We're putting you on the spot. In the next few weeks. Oh, goodness me. um, Putting me on the spot right now, actually. Um, (laughs) Nothing that I can particularly think of. I'm going to be at the St. Kilda Eco Centre Repair Cafe today, even in the pouring rain. So if you have something that's broken or needs fixing, you can come to the St. Kilda Eco Centre at 55A Blessington Street. That's always fun. Um, In terms of spruiking anything else, I got nothing. I'm not doing much at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) The Repair Cafe is wonderful. Keeping so many kilos of stuff out of landfill by repairing it and the volunteers are amazing amazing yeah. can attest oh they're that. fantastic yeah. it's so much fun bantering with them you know and somehow we always get involved in paleontology discussions as well i wonder why so it's always fun <laughs> i know <laughs> thank you right? so much it's like ben it's-, it's always a pleasure to have you and we will have you back on the show soon um and yeah keep us informed about all of those fossils everyone you know what to do now when you find one um that was ben francicelli talking about the ethics of fossil hunting always a pleasure as you said i'm really looking forward to having ben on the program again 9.49 coming up to 9.50 this is radio marinara on three triple r got a couple of station announcements i'm going to kick off with this one uh this is a Message for you if you are a listener and um, just wanting to mention again, April Amnesty, we are calling for subscriptions and donations via rrr.org.au. So uh, don't call us, but please do via our rr.org.au you can find the uh, links through there and um, you'll you'll hear this a lot uh, through the, the month of April but it's super important just to note that you know we did lose all our sponsorship income uh, through um, COVID-19 uh, which you know traditionally has made up half of our revenue we've got sponsorship income returning it's still only about half of what it was so we're hoping to match the amazing level of listener support we received last year with your help this year and um, our uh, our theme for this year's Radiothon is Triple R Forever um, moving on from last year's Your Station in Isolation so um, we just asking any listeners who are in a position to do so please consider subscribing, renewing your subscription and or making a donation every little bit helps. We have prizes just as we do with Radiothon and uh, anyone who subscribes during April automatically goes in a draw to win an amazing array of prizes. There's olive oil, jewellery, beer, coffee and even a brand new bike. So um rrr.org.au and uh, keep this wonderful station going and 
Welcome, Jeff Maynard. Welcome, Bron. I mean, sorry, welcome, Jeff Maynard. <laughs> yes, I'm, just, I'm out of practice. I haven't, haven't been in the studio for well over a, a very eventful year, but I'm back. It's so great it's, to it's have you here. It's kind of Soundwaves, a sequel in its own road a little way, isn't it? And yes. I'm doing sequels. Now, um, uh, a couple of years ago, Bron, you may not remember, but I did a movie called The Attack of the Two-Headed Shark. And it was basically a shark with two heads. And yeah. it was quite intelligent because it, it swam around and it waited for two people to wade into the water and stand side by side and just stand there, uh, usually females in bikinis, and it would come up and it would bite <laughs> them both in half together. And um, and so, But they're bringing out sequels because that was a classic movie and very popular. And they're bringing out sequels. And um, <clears throat> our first sequel is set in an underwater um, marine biology station. So let's have a listen to our... So guys, currently we are half a mile under the ocean. This underwater station is so special to everyone that works here with 45 highly qualified research staff selected from the world's leading marine biology university programs and special interest groups. We have two state-of-the-art underwater docks and three submarine vehicles capable of collecting samples from the ocean floor and procuring specimens of local marine wildlife. We built the station on an island next to the garbage patch and it features a central crater right down into the ocean. Ah, next so, to the garbage patch, is yeah, that the clue? Yeah, this will probably intrigue a lot of listeners to Radio Marinara because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there wondering about a career in marine biology. Mm. Um, I, watching all these movies, I can, I can give them some hints. It's quite simple. Uh, if you're an intern going to one of these places, a ba- female intern, you basically wear a bikini. If you're a qualified marine biologist, you wear a bikini, but you put a white lab coat over the top. <laughs> and if you get elevated to professor, uh, then you wear a bikini, a white lab coat, and um, you put on large spectacles on your face, <laughs> big pair of glasses, and then you're a professor in marine biology. So that's a little tip for anyone out there. But anyway, we're in our little underwater marine biology station, and we get attacked not by a two-headed shark. No, we go one better. Level 2B, I've got you taking on water. Steve! A4 is taking on water. Way too much water. We're evacuating down here. I'm going to try to seal it off. You've got to get out of there, Brian. Get out. Get out now, Brian. There's no way out. We are... This doesn't make sense. Sharks are hunters, but this level of aggression, it's unheard of. Well, I've never heard of a giant three-headed shark before either, but I guess all bets are off at this point. So our sequel goes from two-headed shark to three-headed shark. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. Um, You would think, okay, we're going to do a four-headed shark movie. Well, we sort of did and we didn't because we jumped to – well, I won't give it away because it's really intriguing and and thing. But anyway, we we get in another – now, next sequel, uh, a couple are on a boat and they get attacked by a shark and they're reporting to the police what happened. We're very sorry for what happened. But we need to confirm a few things, if you don't mind. I know it sounds ridiculous. We know what we saw. That thing killed Sean. It wasn't a shark. It was... It was shaped like a starfish. It had four heads. I couldn't tell. It all happened so fast. Multiple heads. Shaped like a starfish. (laughs) So... But this shark, this movie's called Five-Headed Shark Attack. But right. it's, they say it's got four heads. But the trick is there's another head on its tail. When they finally see it and it swims past, the the finny thing at the back is a big head as well. And that So just when you think you've, it's got past you, the, 
the, the tail turns around and that bites you in half too. So it's actually a five-headed shark attack. So it's getting... Now, you would think at this point we'd give up, wouldn't you? you know, I like, can't believe it's even got to this stage. You're, well, imagine it, someone's come up with this it, idea and they've pitched it and they've done their treatment and they've sent it in and like it's, well, this they've got production moved, behind it. Yeah, we're up really? to about four or five movies now. Anyway, wow. um, so we, we figure it all out in the next one, what's actually going on. If you damage this thing badly enough, but you don't kill it, it regenerates. <laughs> but instead of just repairing itself, it grows. A new head. Exactly. And this thing's been injured five times severely. That means what we're dealing with is six interdependent great white sharks. That grows its heads back. That thing has six heads. We have eight heads. We can outsmart it. Is that your reasoning? So it's up to six heads now. But we've we've got we've got eight people in bikinis and white lab coats, and they're able to actually they're going to outsmart it somehow. Now that's not the good news, Bron. Oh really? Because no, I I did a little search on on Google, and I found out there's go, they're going to release a seven-headed shark attack movie. It hasn't been released yet, so I'm looking forward to bringing that one in. And um, and just seeing what's going on in that one. But I thought Sharknado had kind of stretched this concept of bizarre Sharknado shark movies. Up to is... about seven or eight movies by now. It's, wow. it's, it's just it's ridiculous. But uh, no, no shark attack. So, but one of the good things, one of the good scenes in I think the I forget which I think it was the five-headed shark or the four-headed shark with a tail head or something like that. it could walk because it walks up on the beach by using its it, it uses its heads as legs so it walks up on the beach so the people standing in the shallows don't have to stand in the shallows and wait to get eaten anymore they just stand on the beach and the shark walks on its heads like this weird kind of crab thing and goes up and then bites them in half so it's really really um, I mean as someone interested in marine biology Brian you should be across this a bit better I would have thought <laughs> so will the eight headed one be an octo shark is that oh, what you're kind of tipping octo shark that's good that's good. Do you reckon? Maybe. Yeah. We'll Look, see. I don't know. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. And then the next one can be like a Decker shark, which will be Did like a crustacean. Did you get that little joke there? Get okay. ahead of ourselves? <laughs> no, I okay. missed it. <laughs> I'll be back with seven-headed shark. Be satisfied with that. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. So good to have you back. Oh, I was thrilled to be back. Any um, clues on the next one? No. Okay. Nice. No. No. no I haven't done it yet. <laughs> let's let's stick to what sequel. we always do. Yeah, yeah perfect. Yeah. All right. Thank you. And um, thanks so much to our guest today, Ben Francis Shelley Rex, who I think has already gone. Thanks, Farm. Um, she is in the green room. Thank you so much, Kent, very much. And uh, yeah, thank you to you for listening. Um, and thanks to Cliff in Antarctica. We think you're probably still listening to Cliff. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.